0: On to today's show. Before I introduce my next guest, I want to make it clear that all opinions expressed during this conversation were from Ralph Shami and do not express the views of the International Monetary Fund, also known as the IMF. My conversation with Ralph Shami was the longest interview that I've done to date. So for your listening pleasure, And convenience, I've cut it into two parts. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Ralph Shami to the show. Ralph Shami is currently the assistant director in the Institute for Capacity Development at the International Monetary Fund, where he oversaw the development and implementation of the internal economics training program for all IMF economists, as well as the revamping of the Institute's external training program for officials under member countries. Ralph is also widely known for his recent work about nature's solution to climate change and how placing value on whales and elephants can change the way we view nature. Ralph, how are you doing today?
1: I'm fine, thank you. Thank you, Raj, for the invite.
0: Ralph, I'm very excited to dig into our conversation, but before I do, where are you currently located?
1: I uh, currently I'm, I'm living in Maryland, Potomac, Maryland.
0: How's the weather up there?
1: Uh it's uh, cloudy and it was <laughs> it was supposed to be dry, but it's drizzly. Uh, so it, it rained yesterday, and it's uh, drizzling this morning or this afternoon, too.
0: Well, I'm glad you're getting some rain up there. We haven't had any down in Dallas for quite a while. Oh, my. So, Ralph. Yes. I'd like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be?
1: Um, I never thought I would be an economist, <laughs> i I started out in sciences uh and along the way i um i was a musician i still am i wanted to be a musician but i realized i was not good enough to be a professional musician and uh by a weird uh, sequence of events i ended up being an economist so if you had asked me um Many, many moons ago, when I was in college, an undergrad in physics and sciences, uh, would you want to be an economist? I would have said, are you kidding me? So one thing interesting is 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 you never know what, what the future holds. Um, that, that
0: is ab- absolutely interesting. Yeah. Staying with that for a moment, yes. what instrument do you play?
1: I'm a guitarist. I'm a trained guitarist. Uh, and I play many instruments that are related to the guitar, string instruments.
0: And... I've heard that economics is the study of incentives, so you mentioned your background in sciences. What was your incentive to switch gears and move into the you know to to become an economist?
1: Um, so um uh, my story is a bit is a bit uh, convoluted. I started out in the sciences. The civil war in lebanon uh, forced me to leave uh, and back in uh, finally in nineteen eighty three and i arrived in the us and i got an offer to come to university of kansas to study uh, graduate to do graduate work in statistics and finance and when i started there i started taking courses because i had so many electives in sciences they kept telling me you need you need electives and outside of sciences so i went to take courses in the business school make a long story short i took one course in economics and I love the, um, the abstract nature of it, the ability to think beyond just numbers um, and the, the framing of the question. And, uh, and you talk about incentives, this is where I started to understand the, the role of incentives in governing people's behavior. Uh, and so uh, I, I got a graduate degree in finance and statistics and then I came to Johns Hopkins to do a PhD in economics. And I wrote my dissertation in information economics, which has a lot to do with incentives.
0: So one course in economics has led to, if my research is correct, 22 years at the IMF. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. And before that, uh, nine years at University of Notre Dame in the, in the finance department in the business school, I was a, I was assistant professor. Yeah.
0: So for those that might not be familiar, can you just give a brief overview of the International Monetary Fund and your role at the organization?
1: Sure, the International Monetary Fund uh, is a Bretton Woods uh, institution that was created circa nineteen forty four uh, with the World Bank um, and the 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 world came together and said we need we need basically someone to monitor the world on behalf of all the countries of the world to ensure financial stability and uh, trade openness and uh, employment uh, ensure employment across the countries so um, uh, they needed a monitor on behalf of all the countries and the world bank was created to focus on development projects which are long-term and the imf was created to focus on short-term needs of countries be it balance of payment needs um, be it um, in terms of technical uh, well in terms of if there's a crisis on the balance of payments uh, side the, the imf would intervene to help countries Also, the IMF provides advice, um, which is uh, basically uh, on a yearly basis. There's something called surveillance of the members on behalf of the members. And also, the IMF provides technical assistance and capacity developments to member countries as a benefit of belonging to to the fund.
0: And what is your role at the IMF?
1: I uh, currently I am in the Institute for Capacity Development. So our job is to enhance capacity uh, among the uh, public sector. We only deal with the public sector in our member countries. About 190 member countries. So all the officials in those uh, in those countries, especially in the central banks, ministries of finance, economics, and so forth. Uh, would have access to training and technical assistance on macro issues, fiscal issues, monetary issues, uh, financial issues. And in particular, my job right now is focusing on the Western Hemisphere uh, region in terms of capacity development. Um, I also was a mission chief and division chief for fragile states, uh, in particular in the Middle East and Central Asia countries. Um, And so I was mission chief for, in particular for Libya and Somalia, but also I was division chief for Yemen, um, Egypt, um, um, Sudan, South Sudan. Um, And I did surveillance, uh, meaning studying, monitoring countries, about 32 countries, when I was head of the regional studies division for the Middle East and Central Asia uh, Caucasus Department.
0: So before we move on, Can you perhaps give a definition of a fragile state and what indicators people would know perhaps to look for to define a fragile state?
1: Sure. Uh, So uh, there there are different definitions of fragile states, but in the ones that matter to us is really it boils down to inability of the government to provide the public goods uh, for the benefit of its citizens. It's inability either due to civil strife that has taken place or to political... um, uh, how shall I say roadblocks, or basically lack of capability of the government to to do so, and uh, that's the simplest definition I can think of. And there are different measures of uh, you know how you define it in, in order to basically figure out how many countries fit within that within that category. But the basic one is the government is unable to provide the basic needs for its for its uh, citizens. Um, and and so, but you have within that range, you have a, quite a bit of a wide range. You have countries that are really fragile on and what we call uh, sort of failed states or near, near failure, where you have complete chaos. And you have those that are in the space of fragile states, muddling along with very little impact of the government or ability to conduct proper policy or business. And then you have those that are slowly exiting fragility into sort of normalcy.
0: I appreciate you giving that definition. And I'm going to make what I would consider here a hard right turn and the reason that you came on my radar. Can you speak to me about living whales are worth an enormous amount of money?
1: Yes. um, That's a long story, so I will provide the abridged version and you can let me know if you want me to dig through uh, some of the details. About four years ago on my bucket list was um, that I wish to... To, um, to observe the blue whales, which are the largest creatures that have ever lived on this planet. And that includes the dinosaurs. And you can only of course uh, see the blue whales uh, in, the open, in the open ocean, open sea. A friend of mine who was connected to a research group one day called me up and says, um, they, they may have a, an opening for one person um, and the, um, the skipper will give you a call and see whether you, you would fit that. Uh, anyway, I got a phone call and, and I assured the person that I, I know how to swim <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't get seasick. Beyond that, I had no knowledge of anything about whales or anything you know, on marine life beyond just diving, I, some diving, so forth. Anyway, I found myself on a boat in the Sea of Cortez, Baja, on the Mexican side. Uh, with uh, nine people that I did not know, uh, whom I did not know, and uh, with a, a, and we'd go out every day for about eleven hours, uh, studying the blue whales. And literally, my first job was to I would hold the clock, and the captain would say Ralph, and I would <laughs> clock, <laughs> meaning when the when the blue whale came up to to breathe, and then say Ralph, and then I would hit it again. That's when the when the blue whale would dive. That was my value added. Um, and uh, But, you know, the conversation at dinner would come back exhausted and uh, we would all cook together. And it was a very nice uh, group of people. Uh, we became good friends over the years. Um, I overheard a conversation about carbon sequestration by whales. Now, of course, I knew from my science background that we are all carbon units and we all retain carbon, we have carbon in us. And I said, so what's the big deal about the whales? And of course, I should have known because you have to understand a blue whale is a, can be between 90 and 120 foot long. And it's not only the length of the blue whale, it's the width, it's the volume, which is massive. And, and you're sitting in a boat, a 20 foot boat. Let me just describe to you, a blue whale, you can fit the largest African elephant inside the mouth of a blue whale.
0: Oh, my word. Okay. No so, so that
1: you, you have an idea what we're talking about here.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Picture the largest elephant. It would fit completely inside just the mouth of a blue whale. Okay. <laughs> Forget the rest of the body. So, uh, so one of them, uh, one of the whale experts said to me, the carbon on whales is beyond anything you, you can imagine. And, and, and I said, uh, as I'm a researcher, I'm, a, I'm an economist researcher, so, uh, and I said, uh, is this your opinion or this is – I said, no, 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 this is well, well known uh, uh, Andy Pershing 2010 paper, famous paper, and they all talk about uh, whale, whale, uh, carbon sequestration by the whales. Because you see, whales are so massive. When they die, they're, they're negatively buoyant. So when they die, they sink to the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And their carbon that's in their body does not interact with oxygen. So it doesn't become CO2. So it disintegrates over very 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 long periods. You see, mm-hmm. as a result, what happened is at um, that night I didn't sleep. I sat in my room and downloading all of the all of the documents, and I was reading. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, I discovered that these whales were capturing so much carbon, uh, and. Um, so, the next day they they claimed that I was very quiet the next day i didn 't say anything on the boat the whole day. Mm-hmm. I was digesting that information because I was trying to figure out how much does a whale on average capture uh, because you have many sizes of the great whales and many types you have about nine and uh, and of course, economists, we all like to think of on average how much how much does a whale capture in carbon i couldn 't find that in the in the articles that I was reading. Because these are scientists, so they're talking about per tissue, per kilogram, per this, or that. So I had to build the, I had to build that um, matrix myself and calculate it. Basically, I found out that um, great whale captures about, on average, on average, uh, nine tons of carbon on its body, and if you multiply that by eleven over three, that's thirty-three tons of carbon dioxide that's being kept out of the, out of the atmosphere on the body of a of a great whale. Mm-hmm. So that was the first discovery, which they, the scientists knew that. It's just we didn't know that, or I didn't know that. <laughs> um, and the next uh, day or so, another uh, startling uh, thing. They were talking about the whale pump. And I said, what's a whale pump? This is at dinner. Uh, after my third glass of uh, wine, I was like, what's a whale pump? I keep hearing you guys talk about whale pump. So they said, well, you know, this great whale feeds on krill. And krill is much smaller than a shrimp, right? Very, very small um, Mm -hmm. creature. And so, because these are baleen whales, they don't have teeth. So they swallow a lot of water and then they have like a sieve. Their their teeth are like a sieve and the water gushes out and they trap the krill inside. I said, okay. They said, well, the krill feeds on phytoplankton. And you know, Ralph, phytoplankton are uh, viewed as the lungs of the planet because phytoplankton capture about 30 percent of all carbon dioxide out there and and they return in exchange they return 50 percent plus of of oxygen into the air which means every other breath that you and i take Mm -hmm. really you should be thanking the phytoplankton and so the so the great whale eats a krill the krill feeds on the phytoplankton i said okay Um, and they said, well, the phytoplankton, for it to survive, it needs phosphorus, nitrogen, and iron. And where do you you think those exist? And I said, well, maybe, I had read a few articles, I said, well, maybe runoffs from rivers and wind movement. They said, yes, but uh, deep in the ocean, there isn't any of that. Where do you think they're getting all that nutrients? I said, well, I I don't know. They said, from the poop of the whale. So it turns out that the great whales... Uh, very smart creatures. Uh, their their poop is full of. Uh, in the in the Arctic, in the Antarctic, it's the it's the iron that's the limiting factor, and that's found in abundance in in their in their fecal plumes. And in the Atlantic, it's the phosphorus and nitrogen that matter more, and uh, that's also found in their poop. So what the whales are doing, in fact, and and their satellite now imagery that shows you that that the phytoplankton really blossom where whale activity is very uh, is is evident they've been able to capture that through satellite so what the whales do they they release their fecal plumes which fertilizes the phyto and you get more productivity on the phyto which means more phyto more phyto more krill more krill more food for the whales so the whales are there's this virtuous cycle and so the whales are fertilizing their own food if you like Mm -hmm. now for me what was interesting for me is that the phyto capture carbon so if the whales are fertilizing the phyto that means their whales are contributing indirectly to the capture of more carbon dioxide from the air and so i asked them has anybody calculated the total impact of whales on carbon sequestration carbon dioxide sequestration and they said no now, why is that important? Because there are the same scientists who are complaining to me that the whales are dying. We used to have five million whales, and now we have about a million. And the future doesn't look very good because the oceans are dying. The you know, Sea temperatures are changing. Food, food chain in the water and the ocean is, 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 being, is under attack. The whales themselves are under attack through ship strikes and sonar testing and all that stuff. And they were giving up. These scientists didn't know what to do. So it occurred to me, as this is a conversation over a week and some, that perhaps I can help them. So I offered to help them. And they said, how could you help us? I said, look, you're telling me information that is incredibly valuable, but lives in the world of science. Whereas the help that you really need are from people that have money and the means to help you. But those people don't speak your language. So if you're looking for someone to give you money to do research, these are people, either rich people or philanthropies or what have you, they don't necessarily understand the science. If you're looking for policy action, you're, you're really targeting policymakers, and those guys are lawyers, economists, or what have you, and they don't understand the science. So you're speaking two different languages. <laughs> um, so the cost of, of conservation is well understood. Because whenever you want to preserve something, the first question you always get is, how much is this going to cost us? But the benefit that you get from a living whale, the fact that the whale captures so much carbon and, and creates so much uh, positive spillovers in the oceans, is only li- up until our work lived in the world of science. So I said, how about if I do the following? I translate your scientific knowledge into dollars and cents so that my world the world that I call them, what's in it for me world, <laughs> would start to care. And of course, you know, when you say that to scientists, they don't, they don't get you. They're like, but why would you want to do that? I said, because you guys, when you want to raise funds or awareness, you're, you're, you're preaching to the converts. You, you are what we say in the US, you're doing navel-gazing. Mm-hmm. You, you preach to those who are already on your side, but you've left out a huge segment of the society or, you know, huge in terms of resources. Right. Those are the people with the money and the power and the policy ability that are don't understand what you do. But I speak their language. I spent 22 years at the IMF negotiating all kinds of things with governments and ministers, and prime ministers and and presidents. I speak their language and I come from the financial markets. So I, I, I know what they how they like to see information. So why don't I take your science and convert it into dollars and cents so that now we can compare apples with apples? So when you say we need money to protect the whales, the policymaker says, how much is this going to cost me? Or the budget person, you say, X dollars. What do I get in return? You say, Y dollars. That didn't exist up until my work, the work that I've done with my colleagues. That uh, see, So what you had was two groups speaking two different languages. And so what I did then uh, with the help of uh, co- my colleagues, I, I, uh, I took all the, the carbon that the whales captured on their body and indirectly through the fertilization of phyto, plus what other things the whales did. For example, there's studies now showing that when you have a vibrant whale community, you have fisheries that are vibrant, so the positive spillovers there. We looked at uh, also uh, whale watching industry, which is a multi-billion-dollar industry. So we looked at all the benefits from a living whale, and uh, and then we calculated the present value of all of this. Because you have to understand when you when you want to value the the, the services of a whale, you have to take it over its lifetime. Mm-hmm. And some whales live 125 years. Some of them 95 years, 75 years. I took 60 years, a minimum. And whales give birth. Some of them give birth. The females give birth only when they're adults. And some of the cows survive, don't survive. So we built a logistic model, a population growth model. And we go out 150 years. And we, you, what you do then, you discount all of that. So we used financial techniques. Once we got the science down, we used financial techniques to basically calculate the value of the services, not the value of a whale, value of, of the services that a whale provide over its lifetime. And uh, so there's a part that belongs to the whale, part belongs to the growth aspect, the compounding aspect, which is based on whales giving birth and some of them survive and so forth. And you discount all of that to the present and we came up with that the value of the services of a whale uh, is a minimum of $2 million in current current dollars. Now yeah. you have to compare that with the value of a dead whale. Because up until our work, uh, the only value you had to a whale is when you killed it, chopped it into pieces, served it as a steak in some restaurants in some countries. The value of a dead whale would fetch about $40,000 or eight between forty and 80000 depending on the size. So $2 million is the value of a living whale, alive, a living whale alive, thriving, giving birth, frolicking freely in the oceans, unhindered by human activity. And that's a minimum.
0: And if I'm correct in my research, I found that the world population of whales currently is worth more than one trillion dollars. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. Because uh, take two million, uh, just straight calculation. Take two million, which is by the way is a minimum. I can elaborate why I think this is a minimum, uh, and multiply it by we have about two. We have about a million whales left, million in some. Mm-hmm. Uh So that's 2 million times 1 million that's definitely over 1 trillion right
0: absolutely yeah now when you had this aha moment yes can you tell me about your uh, trip to st matthew's cathedral <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> so what happened there uh, you have to understand i'm not an environmental economist i'm a financial economist um, i'm a, i'm known at the imf in and in the research world, there's a guy who's done work on banking regulation, financial markets, remittances. I'm an expert on remittances and fragile states. I've never written a paper on environmental economics. So you have to have respect. You know, we, we respect each other's fields and you don't just decide to write a paper out of the blue. So what happened is when I promised the scientists that I would help them, I came back, uh, came back from my trip. And this is over, you know, two years of doing this. Quietly in the background, and this is not IMF work. So I was only doing this when I had any time for myself, which is late nights and at home. And um, the first calculations were back of the envelope calculations, and the number was huge. And I thought I made a mistake. I must have, you know, divided by you know 0.001 or something like that. <laughs> Um, so um, I went into one Sunday. I remember um, I kept getting the same number, and I'm usually careful, but you know, we all make mistakes. So I went into the office one Sunday morning, early, early, and I sat down. I built this spreadsheet and I put down all the numbers and all the assumptions and I started doing simple calculations. The number came up, and I was convinced I had made a mistake, so I deleted it, deleted the whole spreadsheet. Everything and started from scratch. Hmm. Again, the same number came up. I started to panic, literally panic, because what, what? Because I, you know, I have no benchmark. There's no other paper for me to go look at and say, oh, okay, yeah." I'm really you're out, and you know you're out there. <laughs> so I decided to go for a walk, and I started walking from my office on 19th Street, ended up on 17th Street, went into Saint Matthew's. And my family is originally Catholic, and I hadn't been to church in 30 years. I don't know what happened that morning. I just ended up there. And I remember sitting in the pew, and I thought to myself, uh, I said, well, look, you and I haven't seen eye to eye for a long time. and um, But if you want to teach me a lesson, please don't do it this way. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know— uh, I whatever humble reputation I have, I have. I worked hard for it, and if I publish a number that some some person comes around and says, "Hey, you forgot, you know, you multiplied by a thousand by mistake," I mean, I will. I'll be the laughing stock for the rest of my life. And um, literally, I mean, I sat there and I didn't know what to do, and and then I got up, I went and had lunch, um, and then went back to my office early afternoon, sat down, again, deleted everything so I don't remember anything. Rebuilt the spreadsheet all over again, and lo and behold, the same number. At that point, I think I started tearing, um, because I had a decision to make. Either I tell the world, or I keep my mouth shut, and pretend I couldn't do the exercise. Literally, that was a decision. Uh, There was no No one was asking me about it. I mean, the scientists, surely, every now and then, they'll say, any progress? And I would say, I'm very busy with the IMF work. Um, And then I thought, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change all the column titles to X's and Y's and Z's, and I'm going to send it to two people that I trust blindly, whom I've known for 30 years, and with whom I've published many papers. Uh, Conor Fullenkamp at uh, Duke, and Tom Cosimano at the time uh, was at Duke. University of Notre Dame. He just retired. Um, so, uh, so I s- I sent them two separate emails. I didn't tell I, each one. I mean, they didn't know that the other was what the other one was doing. And I asked each one of them to check my work. And they said, "What is this all about?" I said, "For now, just check the work. Here are the equations. Here are the uh, the parameters. Here's everything, and tell me where is where where's the mistake." And each one of them separately came back and said, There is no mistake here. What is this all about? So then I had to come clean and I said, This is what that's what I've discovered and um what do you guys think? And lo- make a long story short, this is how we ended up writing the um of course, you know, the original was in a spreadsheet and then we you know, we developed the model and now the model is, lives in MATLAB and it's in continuous time and it's much more sophisticated. But that at the time, when you do, whenever you start these exercises, you always start simple, sketch your mistakes before you generalize. But that's the story of how we, uh, I, uh, not only I worked on it, but to convert uh, Tom Cosimano, who's well known in terms of uh, theoretical banking work, financial asset pricing. And Connell, uh, uh, econometrician, time series, and also macroeconomist, financial economist, to convert them to work on the whales was not easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's uh, well worth the uh, well worth the effort in terms of... Uh, so this is how we ended up writing that paper.
0: So how were you feeling before you published the paper, and what has the response has been since?
1: That's interesting. I remember telling Connell... Um, as we're finishing, because we agonize over how to write the paper, you see, uh, because the where do you start this conversation? You, you want to tell the world that the value of the carbon sequestration services of the whales is, is worth $2 million in today's carbon price, uh, today's prices. Where do you start that conversation? So we, we took us a while to figure out how best to write the paper. And uh, and I remember also uh, the agony was uh, I had to go and talk to uh, the editor of uh, Finance and Development magazine, whom I've known for many years and I've published many articles in their magazine. Uh, so I had to use, I had to leverage my reputation with them to say, I need you to write to publish this, which was not easy for them because they have never seen anything like this. This is not something they would write about. And then I said, we need to tell the story, the story that the whales have been looking after us for millions of years uh, and, and, uh, and the value of their services is gigantic, yet the, the, we price a living whale or the services of a living whale to be zero. That's the enigma, right? That right now, if you have a ship that hits a whale and kills the whale, you pay no penalty for it at all. Mm-hmm. You only value the whale when it's dead, whereas the whale alive is is producing services that are over $2 million in terms of value. So how can that be? Okay, that was the puzzle in my head, which I couldn't solve at that point in time when we were writing the article, but it was in the back of my head. As a theoretician, I was thinking about it. Anyway, um, so we convinced the... Uh, the editor to publish the paper uh, after it was reviewed and all that stuff. Um, and I remember telling Connell and Tom, hold on to your seats. I think things will change. <laughs> I think that was an understatement. <laughs> um, it, I think it came at the right time. You see, timing is everything. And it's not that I picked the right time, it came at the right time. Uh, awareness about the climate. Awareness about our role in this world, how we relate to our natural world. Um, awareness about maybe the limitations and the gaps in our current economic paradigm. Uh, climate calamity upon us. All of this was coming together. So when we wrote the paper, it just went viral. I mean, I can't even tell you. Uh, you know, i had it was written up in the Washington Post and the Time and the National Geographic and FT. I mean, it was just... And translated into so many and and the in so many languages and requests for interviews and 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 so forth. Um, but the idea was just to basically say, a vibrant nature is incredibly valuable to us, and it's a newfound wealth. It's not something that we knew about, and we all can benefit from, and um, everyone can benefit from it every stakeholder in the society would benefit from this newfound wealth. Uh, But uh, we have to to change our behavior. So I wrote, that was the first article. Um, And then, of course, uh, even the IMF was asked about it. And I'm I'm, I'm grateful to the managing director who basically championed it too in a number of uh, forums. so then I got a call from Paris, from Fabio Berzaghi, a scientist who had made a, a, an incredible discovery in Africa, 2019, with his colleagues.
0: So before you get that, let me, let me ask the question, because I think it's beautiful how it happened. But the question I'm going to ask you is this, is that, so you gave a beautiful story about whales and how the paper came to fruition. You, met, you asked me earlier to imagine the size of a mouth of a blue whale and an African elephant would fit in that mouth.
1: Yes. So the question for me was, um, what else is out there that we don't know about?
0: You can hear the rest of this conversation in part two of my interview with Ralph Shami. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com, or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the cleantech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.